Hi, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners. My new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now on sale. Publishers Weekly calls it masterful, and Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an entertaining, eye-opening investigation. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. On today's episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs, we are proud to present our third panel discussion on the subject of mentorship presented by Sam Pellegrino. In this episode, we talk with a quartet of industry professionals before a live audience of line cooks at Blue Dorn Restaurant in Houston, Texas. That's coming right up on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you out there are well. Today, we dispense with what Mia Wallace called the usual chit-chat and get right to the matter at hand because this is our third mentorship panel, a special series presented here by Sam Pellegrino. If you are a regular listener, then you know that these Panels are something we have been staging around the country, always for industry audiences. The first was in Philadelphia at the Philly Chef Conference. By the way, the Philly Chef Conference is no longer. Although organizer Mike Trout, who was the wizard behind that uh, event, has reconstituted it independently simply as the Chef Conference. And yes, I will be presenting there in the spring and it will still be in Philadelphia. If you have attended that event, you know what great news that is. In any event, the uh, mentorship panel that we did in Philadelphia featured chefs Eric Williams and Damar Brown of Chicago's much-lauded Virtue Restaurant. They also happen to be good friends of mine, and that restaurant is awesome. If you go to Chicago, you got to check it out. You will be very happy if you do. The second mentorship panel took place at a San Pellegrino on the line dinner in Chicago at Boca Restaurant, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary. And that conversation featured restaurateur Kevin Bame and chef Lee Woolen. And the remaining ones after today's took place in Miami, Los Angeles, and New York City. And we will be bringing you all of those before the end of the year. And you can find all of our mentorship conversations, if you haven't listened to uh, to the ones that have already aired, on the Andrew Talks to Chefs website, archived under Mentorship Conversation. There's a quartet of boxes in the middle of the homepage uh, that archive shows according to various topics. And that is the first one you will see if you scroll down uh, to that part of the homepage. So, Today's panel took place just about three weeks ago in mid-November in Houston, Texas at Bluedhorn Restaurant. Bluedhorn is the restaurant opened during COVID, no less, by Aaron Bluedhorn, who used to be the chef at Cafe Blued in New York City. The panel features Aaron, Rebecca Masson, 
the proprietor of Fluff Bake Bar. Aaron and Rebecca are both old friends of mine from their time in New York City, and both have been on the pod in just the past few years. Rebecca was on just this summer, so if you want to listen to more about them, you can find their conversations. I also have to say I, along with many other people, have mispronounced Rebecca's name for years as Rebecca Mason. It is not Mason. It's Masson. And she's never corrected me. I, I think it's for the same reason a lot of people whose names get mispronounced stop correcting people. They just get tired of fighting that uphill battle. But Rebecca, if you're listening, I am still very sorry that I've been getting it wrong for almost 20 years. Um, rounding out the panel were Jared Zivchak, who is chef de cuisine at Aaron's other restaurant there in Houston, Navy Blue, and Jared Adams, who is part of the team at Fluff Bake Bar. And I have to just quickly apologize to Jared Adams, who is in the episode picture for the show, but is missing from the preview image on our homepage and uh, the photo that appears on some podcast platforms because the picture we have of the entire panel was too wide for the allotted space there. And Jared was way off to one side, but as I say, he is in the main uh, show description photo for this episode. So this discussion took place as part of the On the Line series that was started by the Atto Group in New York City and then taken up by Sam Pellegrino. It is a lovely program that treats line cooks to a night out that usually includes a cocktail reception, a dinner, and then an after party, all of them at the same local restaurant. I say same local restaurant, I mean, they all take place at the same restaurant in each city, uh, not uh, that they all take place uh, in the same restaurant, which would be physically impossible. Um, the series gives the cooks a chance to meet each other and fosters industry camaraderie and interconnectedness. I explain a little bit more about it and my own personal connection to it uh, in the introduction in the live recording that you're about to hear. Just a couple of quick notes before running the conversation. I asked all participants to introduce themselves uh, at the, rather than having me do it. And I kept quite a bit of detail in this edit because they all have pretty unique stories. And also Rebecca is the only pastry chef featured in this entire series. So I thought it would be cool for those of you who haven't heard the episode uh, featuring her uh, for an entire hour to hear a little more detail about her story specifically. Also, when we get to the audience questions, you will note that when I repeat them, I repeat a much longer question than seems to have been asked. That is because I've edited the question from the audience member way down just to give a sense uh, of time passing. Uh, but since you can't hear those questions, uh, I didn't see any point in leaving uh, 30 seconds of someone speaking without a microphone uh, just to give a true sense of timing. So if it seems like I'm repeating a question that could not possibly have been as long as what I'm saying, that is the reason. And that is all I think you need to know to get you oriented, except that again, this series is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here, on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And now, picture if you will, a long table in the private dining room on the second floor of Blue Dorn Restaurant. The table is populated by line cooks who have just enjoyed a stellar multi-course meal on a night off, Aaron, Rebecca, Jared, Jared, and I take to the bar stools that have been set up at the front of the room, and then I start the conversation. Here you go. We're going to have this talk. Before we do, can we have a round of applause for the dining room staff here and the kitchen staff here? And also, it's a quick thank you for Sam Pellegrino for hosting. So, as I mentioned earlier, and as 
as Aaron kind of set up before, these dinners started a couple of years ago. They were started by the Atto Group. You guys may have heard of a restaurant called Atomix in New York. They also have Atto Boy. They have a newish restaurant called Naro, some of the better up-and-coming operators in the city. Pellegrino was so taken with it, they kind of eventually took the baton and started putting these dinners on around the country themselves. And as I said earlier, when I went to my first one, because I, through my podcast, have a relationship with the brand, I was like, if I can ever be a part of these dinners, I would love to do something, because I just thought they were great and kind of an unusual thing. About a year later, they suggested we start incorporating these panels. I imagine the topic might be different next year, but at all the dinners this year, we've been talking about mentorship. It's something I imagine many of you here are very familiar with. It's something that I really consider unique to your industry. I, I think it's something that harkens back for me to like when you hear stories from years ago about you know guilds and, and any profession that had like an apprenticeship. Uh, tradition. Sure, there's cooking schools and other ways of learning the craft, but you know, this is one of the very few professions, I think, where it's very, not just normal, but I think it's the norm that at some point early in a career, somebody kind of emerges from the landscape that kind of functions as a mentor. And often this is someone who long after you stop working for them, you still call for advice, uh, whether it's uh, technical advice, whether it's business advice, whether it's a management issue. Before we get into all that, I'm gonna let Aaron and Rebecca just briefly introduce themselves and their colleagues here. Hello everyone, my name's Aaron Bluedorn. I am the chef here at Bluedorn and, and owner. I uh, got my my start in this industry, I'll just say really quickly, uh, working at Greasy Spoon Diners as a dishwasher, worked my way up, was a breakfast cook, found my way to the Culinary Institute of America, where incidentally I met Jared uh, years and years ago. Jared's dad is a chef at the CIA, and I used to do catering gigs with him and uh, met him through doing these catering uh, gigs when Jared was in high school, and then we connected years later. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I cooked at uh, Cyrus from Douglas Keene, who's a big mentor of mine and then uh, moved to New York and worked at Cafe Balloud for 10 years uh, and found two other mentors, Gavin Kaysen and Daniel Balloud, and then uh, found myself uh, running Cafe Balloud as the chef for five years, uh, five of my 10 years there. And uh, Jared came on to work uh, with me as a, at first as a cook and then as a sous chef and then ultimately taking my place uh, when I left. Years later, I found myself marrying a girl from Houston, wanting to start a family. Uh, we decided Houston was the place to be because she has a big Greek family. I don't know if you know this family around town. And then opened up Blue Dorn in 2020. We then opened up Navy Blue in 2022. Jared uh, found himself uh, working as a private chef after Cafe Balloud closed um, for the pandemic. And uh, I felt that was an opportunity and a good enough reason to ask Danielle if it was okay. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, that's okay. But uh, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, he'll, yeah, maybe he'll want to come back when I reopen Cafe Balloud. Apparently not. So he opened up uh, Navy Blue with me. Jared is an extremely talented chef. Do you want to talk a little bit about your career? I started my career pretty early. Like you said, my dad's a chef. So I kind of grew up around food and around cooking. And I went to the CIA as well. And then... I did a TA, it was kind of a, kind of a mentorship program where you're you know, kind of a junior sous chef at one of the restaurants on campus. I did that for a year, and then I had an opportunity to go work at La Bernadette in New York City. And I really love seafood, I always loved fishing, and kind of had a connection with, with seafood and the ocean. So I, I went and took a job, first job out of culinary school, La Bernadette. And I stayed there and just kind of absorbed every single little bit of it as I could. Uh, so I was there for four years. I declined a, a sous chef position there. I didn't. I wanted to kind of see what else was out there. And then uh, it was actually on a, a a trip in the Cayman Islands where where he was there with uh, Chef Danielle. I was there with Chef Repair, and um, I was kind of on my way out. And that's kind of how I transitioned into into Cafe Balloud. Danielle and. Uh Eric Repair had to have a full-on uh, summit to <laughs> to negotiate uh, Jared's. Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they 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 gave it the blessing, and um, so there was a lot more um, you know classic French focused. I wanted to learn how to make terrines. I wanted to learn how to cook meat. Like you know, there's not a ton of meat at La Bernadette. There's a little bit, but you know, there was other stuff I wanted to do in my career, and me and Chef Aaron, you know, connected you know on a pretty deep level. So. 
and I wanted to become a sous chef under him and, uh, and Chef Danielle. So to, I took over as, as chef eventually. I started as a tournaut, actually. I worked tournaut, learned the kitchen, kind of gained the respect of all the, the cooks, became a sous chef, then exec sous, then eventually took over and then uh, went into private chefing for a little bit. Um, after COVID, you know, kind of looking for my opportunity to get back into the restaurant industry. It's what I've always wanted to do. I don't want to be a, you know, private chef all my life. So the opportunity presented itself and here I am in, in Houston. By the way, Jared is about, uh, him and his wife are having their first child uh, in the morning. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. I've been here for what, about a year and yeah. three months. And yep. uh, yeah, it feels like five years, a lot's happened. I have to also say, Aaron mentioned earlier that we go way back. Rebecca and I go even further back. Years ago, I helped a chef in New York City by the name of Jimmy Bradley, uh, who had a restaurant called The Red Cat, write his cookbook. And we tested the recipes in the prep kitchen of The Red Cat every Wednesday night. And- You were so in my way. <laughs> Rebecca, who was the pastry chef there, had always had the prep kitchen during service at night entirely to herself. And then all of a sudden, there were three of us there every Wednesday. I'm sure you were more annoyed than you let on. It was we actually really, really fun to watch the three of you, especially you. when you were testing my recipes. All that said, why don't you give people a quick background on yourself and, and on Jared? Well, two Jareds, by the way. Yeah, two Jareds. Who knew? So I am Rebecca Masson. I own Fluff Bake Bar. I learned to bake while I was doing my undergrad in accounting in Wyoming. To be honest with you, I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew how to do it because I could follow the rules. And oddly enough, I'm a rule follower most of the time. I loved it. So I did that, and then I went to be um, a snowboard bum in Breckenridge for about, I told my parents a year, so six years later I needed a career. But baking was something I was always doing. So I found a culinary school in, um, I found the Cordon Bleu in Paris, because who do you learn pastry from? I didn't speak any French, and I didn't know anybody, and I moved across the ocean. So I was, um, did my uh, culinary school in Paris. I did my internship at the Hotel Bristol, which at the time was a two-star Michelin restaurant. Now it's three. Gilles Marchal was the pastry chef, and to this day, that's probably one of my biggest mentors besides Jimmy Bradley that he mentioned. I just, I fell in love with it. So I came to New York with the chefs I was working for in, in Paris and I, we ate at Danielle, we ate at Jean-Georges, we worked in Payard's Kitchen and I had no clue who these people were, none. This was 2000, 2001. Everywhere we went, they said she needs a job and I ended up at DB Bistro, which was Danielle Balud's newest restaurant. And so I spent a year there, and then I went over to Danielle, and then I wandered around, I did this and that, and then it fell into the hands of Jimmy Bradley, which to this day, I adore that man. And he's probably my business mentor. Um, I ask him a lot of questions about business. And then opened BLT Prime, and then I moved to Houston. So I've worked for Ryan Para, Chris Shepard, consulted for Brian Caswell, kind of been around. In about 2011, I got hired to open a new restaurant, and I knew I was hired just to get the restaurant open and the pastry program going, and then I would be let go. And that's what happened. And I said, you know what, I've had enough. So I started baking out of my house because of cottage laws. And then once again, Ryan Para came into my life and he said, we're opening this market. We have a pastry case, do you wanna fill it? And I went, okay, I'll call it Fluff Bake Bar. <laughs> and there you go. So that was 12 years ago. And now, I have people like Jared. This is this is my Jared, aka my pastry muscle. Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. Let's let's like make this the official transition into the combination introducing Jared yeah. and the mentorship thing. Because this story, when you told me this during the pandemic, I, I just thought it was the most amazing story. It's a um, good one. And and not unusual for the industry, but it's kind of an amplified version of a very common thing. Yeah. But why don't you go ahead and, and introduce Jared and tell the story of how <laughs> this all started. So I've known Jared since he was this tall. He lives across the street from my mother. Jared is an amazing baseball player. He played through high school. He played through college. He got injured, right? And that was that, right? So he came home, living at home. I think you worked at, at gallery furniture. You worked cleaning pools. When Jared came to me, he was cleaning pools. So my mom broke her arm, and Jared was driving her around. And at the same time, this was what was it, 2021? So I think I had one employee because we were still pandemicking, right? And I just looked at my mom one day and I was like, I just need a body. 
I don't care. I, need a, I just need a body. Like, I'm tired. My mom goes, Jared, do you want to work at the bakery? And Jared goes, okay. And so Jared showed up, and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so for the longest time, Jared scooped cookies, and he made our little cake cups, and that was it. I was so busy, I didn't really have time to stop and say, okay, let me teach you this, let me teach you that. I just need you to get this done. One day, the other young lady that was working with us, she decided it was her time to leave and I decided she was correct and she left. And Jared walked in and he's like, where's so-and-so? And I go, you ready to learn how to bake? Because here we go. And I just started teaching him everything. I mean, we're talking all the bars, ice cream bases, all of these things. And the thing that I love about Jared, I mean, obviously Jared knew nothing, right? So I can mold him into me. So whoever gets him next, you're screwed. I teach Jared a recipe. We do it a couple times together. The third or fourth time Jared does it, he comes to me and he says, okay, I just want to make sure. I do step A, B, and C. And I go, exactly it. Most pastry cooks in my kitchen will go, how do I do this again? And nothing drives me crazier because you weren't listening the first three times we did it together. And that's the thing that I love about Jared. And that, I don't know if I taught him that or if he learned that from watching, but kids got talent. He may not understand all of the scientific reasons of why things do what they do, but he'll ask me questions. He's a sponge, it's amazing. I was like, that's a mini me, because I used to do that shit when I was in the kitchen. I'm like, why do you do it this way? I don't think it's mini me, Rebecca. You don't? I think it's the opposite with you guys. It's uh-huh. biggie me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. Jared, can you get, the, I need your height today. Jared, I need your muscle today. So, Jared, well, I, I mean, I, I asked you at dinner, I said, do you think you're you know, is this it for you? Are you alive? You know, are you in for life? And you said, I'm having a good time. I mean, as Rebecca's describing, saying, using a word like talent, you know, which doesn't get thrown around lightly. What do you like about it? Does some of what, a lot of what you're doing, is it this, does you do experience it the way she described it? Like, does some of it just feel kind of very natural to you uh, and comfortable to you? Or what's your, like, what's your learning curve been like? I just enjoy learning new things. I guess when she was talking about how I absorb things like a sponge, in high school I had a baseball coach who always praised, you know, be coachable, be able to take in information. If someone's trying to offer you something to make you better, hear them out, take it in, and try and see everything that they're trying to give you. And so that's really what I try and do every day in the bakery. I work as hard as I can and try and have the standards that Miss Becky here has for herself. Basically, every day I go in there trying to just keep up to her standards and not let her down with what I'm doing. Like, one mistake in the bakery for me is a big deal. Like, I hate making mistakes in the bakery. I hate ruining dishes. I hate messing up uh, recipes. I hate wasting food and money. Like, so every day I go in there, I just try and do everything to the best of my abilities. And, uh, you know, it's really enjoyable. I have a lot of fun in there. She likes to have a lot of fun in the bakery, and she comes up with... 30-second dance parties. (laughs) 30-second dance parties, and she's always coming up with, like, crazy ideas for food that I would never even have dreamed of putting together, and she makes them, or, like, I'll help her her make them, and they come out fantastic. I mean, I would never, like I said, never even thought about touching it, but everything she makes is really good, and I've learned so much, and uh, it's really... Just a pleasure to, to have been uh, introduced into the bakery and stuff. So You were smiling really big as you were saying some of that stuff. Do you get a lot of satisfaction from it? I mean, you're describing the pressure of wanting to get it right. But, like, if you end a day and you'd, like, you know, hit most of your marks and things kind of went the way they're supposed to, what, what kind of feeling do you have at the end of that? Satisfaction. I'm competitive. Like she said, I grew up playing baseball my whole life. That's, that's all I did. I, I mean, from four years old to 22 it was just baseball. I try to apply everything I learned in baseball growing up and bring it into the bakery and just, I enjoy it. I just have a good attitude and have fun with it. And I really do just have a good time making everything. So, yeah. He did say that if I die, he'll take the bakery and put a shrine up to me. Yes. (laughs) I guess he's getting the bakery in the will. (laughs) It's a cheery thought. Yeah, isn't it? (laughs) Aaron, can you just talk about, you named like at least three people who you categorize as mentors. When did you become aware that this was kind of a kind of living tradition within the industry? I I guess as a cook, we, you know, when I was a line cook, I always worked for people that I looked up to, that I wanted to be one day. I, I, and I feel like I, I kind of wanted to seek that out with every job 
for me, it was the, the most important part about that job was that I could see myself as that owner, as that boss, as, you know, as that chef, right? And I guess this all, I mean, I, I didn't tell this part of the story, but I was in a situation very similar to this that got me into this in the first place. This is the first time I really realized I had a mentor was I went to college in Arcata, California, California at Humboldt State University. Does anyone know about Northwestern California? It, it's, it's very dark. Uh, there's a lot of woods uh, and it's kind of the forgotten part of, the, of uh, California. And I was just there to have fun and be in college and hang out. And I got a job at a vegetarian restaurant washing dishes as a way to make money. This woman, Connie Pina, who, uh, Pina, who owned the restaurant uh, for the you know, 10 years prior to me, and she was probably maybe 10 years older than me at that time, but had bought it, you know, at around 22 years old and had just run the restaurant. She saw something in me and started to promote me and started to push me and started to, and I ultimately became the chef there at 19 years old. And she went off and had, you know, had kids uh, while I was there and I ran the restaurant. I thought I was going to be in a rock band at the time. I, I thought I was going to I was going to make it in music, and that's what I was going to do. That wrong. That doesn't make any money. It's a bad. It was a bad idea, uh, and I couldn't. You know, the more and more I kind of like matured a little bit, uh, which was not much. It didn't take much for me to mature at that point. Um, I, I found myself uh, realizing that there was no future there, but there was a big future in food for me because I was good at it, and she saw that in me, and she pushed me just like. Rebecca pushed Jared, and I got to a point where she couldn't teach me anymore. And her words for me were, "I can either have you here and I can, you know, you know, help you own another restaurant, or we can, you, know, you continue to be a chef, or you can go learn more." And that has been at every point in my career, I've realized that I had a mentor in that person when they told me. I needed to move on and learn more and get to the next step. The same thing happened with Douglas Keene at Cyrus. When I'd been there for three years, I'd done everything at the restaurant. I was the Tornot. You know, I, I was so happy, so comfortable. And he pulled me aside and said, look, I can make you a sous chef, but I don't want to because you need to learn more. And that became the mark of this was my mentor because they were pushing me to the next level and they were not doing it out of uh, any selfish reason other than the fact that they wanted the best for me in my career because they saw that I had potential. And the same happened with Gavin when Gavin put me in the position to Danielle to be the next chef, he wanted me to move and grow to the next step. And that's very important as a mentor to realize, to see that in whoever you're mentoring when you've run out of options for them at your whatever, it's, it's time for them to move on. And, and I had people do that to me, and now I realize it's my job to do that for the next generation. Can you just talk for one second about, I mean, you've had this place for a couple of years. You obviously had people who uh, worked under you at Cafe Balud, still a relatively young chef, owner, operator. When did you start to realize you were um, like, okay, you still have mentors, right? But, you know, you're now in a position to be that person to other people. And is that a, do you perceive that as a pressure? Do you perceive that as a responsibility if you're going to be in this industry as a chef? Just how does that kind of sit with you? It, it, massive pressure, massive. Uh, we have to be, we have to mentor everyone that comes into our doors. And I can't directly do it myself, but I put it, put it to task with Chef Jared and uh, Chase, who is Chef Chase, who runs Blue Dorn here. And it's because they know that it's in my DNA to do that. I put it in theirs because I realized that, you know, what we all do, what you guys do day in and day out is not easy, not even a little bit. And to, to work those hard hours, those long hours, to be constantly learning, if you're not learning, and if you're not getting the most out of your experience at, at the restaurant you're at, you're, I'm not doing my job because you know it, it, that's what this industry has become and what makes it so great is that we, our kitchens are learning kitchens and you start off, you start off as a, you know, you start off as a, uh, I don't know, a garmage cook or a soup cook or whatever it is, you know, at the, at the entry level position and you move your way around the kitchen over two years and for us as chefs and owners, it's very important for us to continue to put the next step in front of you. And when you don't get to that next step and it's time to move on, it's time for me to realize that 
and not be selfish about it and look for ways and opportunities for you to continue to further your career. We call it graduating uh, in our kitchens. And when you've worked every station and you want to move on and move to the next, I, I offer my career services. I will be your counselor to help you get to the next step of your career. If you want to sit down with me after you, you know, have achieved meat station and you're a tornot and you're ready to go to the next step and you want to go to this restaurant, I'll say, absolutely. We'll find that contact. If I don't know that person, I'll find a way to reach out and we'll get you a trail there, a stage there, and I'll write you a letter of recommendation to continue your career. And sometimes people come to me and they want to give their notice or they'll come to Chef Jared and we'll say, I don't, I don't think you're right. I don't think you've learned everything you know, because look, I get it. It's, you know, sometimes you feel stagnant. You want to see what's new, what's new, what's new. That's great. But if I have something else to teach you, and Gavin did this to me. I tried to quit on him four times, and he said, nope, not yet. Said, I got something more for you. And you know what? He did. Sorry, that was a really long-winded answer. No, it's but good. It no, was, there's a lot of nuance to that, and I think it's important. It's so incredibly important, and we have the biggest responsibility it, it, to, to just answer. That's the biggest responsibility of all. Yeah, thanks for all that. I mean, the thing I would say, I don't know if I've ever called it out like this, right? But the thing you said about letting people know when it's time to like leave the nest or go to the next thing, I, I think personally that that's so important. Um, and in any profession, there are people, you know, there's the people on both sides of that fence, right? There are people who will tell you that. And then there are people who just like, they, they don't want you ever to leave. Why well, we say the thing, if I could boil it down to one thing that a chef is looking for, and an employee, it's someone who will make their life easier. And if you have like a dream employee and they've reached like the summit of, of what you need from them and they're not leaving, selfishly, that's an amazing thing, right? And, and there are people for everybody like yourself that you're describing, you know, there's somebody, there are people who are terrified to give notice because they know the chef's gonna like play mind games with them and or get angry or they're gonna like I, shut them out for the rest of their life. I just say no. They say, can I <laughs> yeah. talk to you? I go, no. Right. No, well, not doing it. But I, I do think it's something just, I wanted to just take a second and say, I, as an observer of your industry, I think it's something really important for people to be aware of in their own environment, like which kind of person, it doesn't mean you can't get a lot from the other kind, but you may have to t be aware of that moment for yourself. Let me just say one thing to that and then we can you know, move on to the next, but what the most important part of that is, is when the cooks around in the kitchen see someone graduate and they see me take that time to place them in that next position or help them move to that next step of their career, that buys you more respect and more you know they know that they could be that person one day if they worked that that cook that just started a week ago sees that we celebrate we celebrated a cook that has done everything that they could do here and graduate that there is the most the strongest pull for them to want to push to be that person one day and that's i mean if, if i'm being selfish about about being unselfish it works both ways, you know? Okay, Jared, I need to know. A dad who's a chef, you go into the field. Was that something that was encouraged? Um, and did you, was this your first mentor? Did you guys kind of keep it church and state? And, and, and you know, he just kind of let you go, figure it out for yourself, if, if you don't mind. He never, like, pushed me into this industry. I always was just, you know, picking up a knife. I wanted to do it. I have four other siblings who would never touch this industry. It was just kind of natural. I just it was naturally gravitated towards towards food, towards cooking. You know, the whole thing. I just loved it. I loved being in the kitchen. I loved the, you know, fire and dangerous things. And so I was just attracted to it. And he supported me all the way through, but never, never pushed. And was he somebody in the early times that you would like, would you go to him for the kind of advice we've been talking about here? Like, what should yeah. my next step be? What do you think about this job opportunity, school or not school? Like, was that, was that stuff that you two went through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was obviously a, a, my first real, like, mentor. He kind of coached me through, you know, you should do this. So I went to culinary school, and then La Bernadette, great idea. Like, just go for it. No hesitation. Go to the city. Go to the best restaurants you could possibly go to. Learn as much as you can. And... Yeah, he was definitely a big part of, um, of my decisions and, and what I did in my career. And what about for you, as you've moved up, become a you know a chef yourself, what's that transition been like for you to the mentor side of things? I mean, Aaron has been just an incredible mentor for me. Um, 
No, honestly, I wouldn't be anywhere the the chef and the, the the person in this industry that I am if it wasn't for him and his guidance and just the constant never wanting to let him down. You know, the more it's constant and mentors' jobs too are to to throw more responsibility on you when they see you hit a peak they're like okay now you're gonna do the order okay you're doing that great now you're gonna do this now you're gonna do that you know like jared was saying too you're just constantly you know trying to level up and meet that standard and never disappoint and it's just kind of a natural thing that you need to have in you to be leveling up you know as fast as you can can i just get a show of hands how many people here i mean you all are are per- fairly early in your career. How many people here already have somebody who you would consider a, a mentor in the industry in your lives? All right, maybe, two thir- maybe two-thirds. It'll happen. It'll happen. Um, Rebecca, you are the first pastry chef we've had on any of these panels we've done. Is there anything, I mean, is there anything unique to that side of things in the area that we're talking about here tonight? Is it, does it take, I mean, it's, people always say that, you know, pastry, this is overgeneralizing, but it, it is, you know, it's more technical, it's less, uh, it's less open to kind of uh, uh, improvisation, right? It's, it, you really have to like weigh, measure, time. Do you think, yeah. is it a longer period of, of learning in a time when everyone's in a huge, you know, the, yeah. the, the common line is, you know, I want to own my, my first restaurant by the time I'm 30, right? <laughs> like, is it, a, is it a longer period of development on the pastry side of things? Or is there anything else unique about it that you've observed over the years? I didn't really grow up baking. Um, I did have an easy bake oven, but I think I used it twice. My auntie made wedding cakes, but I just wanted to eat them. I was working in this coffee shop. A guy built it. He came in. He said, come bake with me. And I was like, no, no, it's 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. And then finally I went. Like I said before, I didn't understand the, the how and the why. I just knew if I did A, B, C, D, it would work. So it took me a lot longer to learn why A, B, C, D worked. And even today, he'll sometimes ask me something and I'll go, oh, sh- I gotta go look this up. I had I had been a hostess and a waitress. I never worked in the kitchen, right? I was always in the front of the house. But it, there was something about in my internship. I don't know if it was because I was in a kitchen in Paris and I just kind of mimicked the behavior of everyone around me. But I that's where I learned. If you make the chef's life easier, he'll like you more. Um, so if he was if he if he was doing a B and C and you knew he needed an offset to do C the offset was sitting there waiting like you just went and did it right um, so I think that set me up from success from the get-go because I learned that in my internship I see him doing that now <laughs> and I didn't teach him that <laughs> um, but I think it's it's funny because I never learned to cook. I've slowly started to teach myself how to cook. And I think I told you, if I have a recipe in front of me, I'm golden. I can make that. But I have to make it like 12 times to then be able to do it on my own and throw something extra in. But I think I noticed, the one thing I noticed, because I, after I came home from Paris, I was in New York, pastry cooks got promoted faster than line cooks because there weren't very many of us. So if you had any sort of, I don't know, gumption or drive or overachieverness, you got pushed up the ranks a whole lot faster. I became a sous chef at like my third job, right? But granted, I'd been at the other two jobs two years each, right? And then I didn't stay a sous chef very long because then I got a pastry chef job. But again, it, you, I don't think I was ready for it. Like my desserts were very much riffs off other people's and it took me a long time to come into my style but in the terms of ranks yeah you got pushed up a whole lot fire but i think for me it took me a long time to become me well i mean i'm always me but you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean you you want you on the plate yeah 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 i want you to know like like when you came to the red cat and you had a sunday on your way home (laughs) that was the cutest story ever but you knew i made that sunday Right, that had me written all over it. Like if if you open the pages of the Red Book, Red Cat Cookbook, there's two different Sundays. You'd know which one was mine. That's what I always wanted. Oh yeah. 
I Jimmy, always, I Jimmy always, helped me do that. Yeah, I always say if a chef has a really well-defined point of view and style, like, you know, you should be able to have, if you've had their food, you, you should know, be able to know. and someone puts like three plates in front of you, you should be able to go, this one's by this chef, this one's by this one, and this one's yeah. by this one. It's, it's harder to be the, that chef now, I think, because yeah. ideas travel like instantaneously so all over the world. So I'm going to open the floor up for questions. Yes. So, I'm sorry if I'm understanding right. What are some? What did you, you guys got that? I think what he's trying to say is, you're not new anymore, but you're not um, like a senior level position. So you're kind of in the middle. So like in Jared's case, he, or Alexis's case, he is now responsible for teaching new people, all while learning to move up. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I think that starts as early as, you know, your first station. You're always wanting to, you know, take what you've learned and pass it down to the next person. So say it's as small as something on, you know, you're on the Garmage station and you're training a new person that comes in. You're technically mentoring that person to, you know, teach them what you learned so they can be successful. So if you break it down like that, there's no point in your career where you're like, oh, I just became a mentor. You know, you're, I, th I feel like you're always a little bit of a mentor and you're always teaching people as you progress through your profession. Does that answer? Yeah. I kind of see it, like I kind of tend to push new people on Jared. A, he's a really good teacher. But B, he learned something new just by teaching someone else, mm -hmm. right? So maybe the, he's he's seeing something in a new or a, a different light or a different direction or thinking in a different way. But not only is he teaching someone, but he's still learning while teaching. Because I've I've seen I've watched that interaction. Yeah. Yeah. No, it all builds on it on its on itself. You know, you you start off like like Chef was saying, like you start to you know as as you're an, as you're a cook, you're you know, you're training the next station, next station. Pretty soon, you're on the meat station, and you're the leader of the of the kitchen, or can be a leader. And it's it's every step that you go along in your career, you're sort of perfecting that. And by the time you become a sous chef, you've been doing that for long enough to where you you're starting to, you know, you're actually leading the entire kitchen. You know, and some days when the chef's not there, it's all on you. And I think that. Um, it's just knowing that that's coming and knowing you're gonna be in that position and building those skills as you go along is so important. And, and, and having a goal that you know, one day, if you wanna be a chef, you're gonna to have to pick up these things. So you learn, you also learn from other people, uh, from your sous chefs, things you like, things you don't like, and you internalize those. And then you, you promise yourself, you're not gonna be like that one terrible sous chef who yelled at you every day you know, and made you feel terrible, but you're gonna be like that other sous chef that inspired you and pushed you. So if you internalize that as you move along and kind of like, cause you're, you're you know, if, you're, if your goal is to one day own a restaurant or run a restaurant or be a chef, you have to, every day that you come in, you, you have to be watching what everyone's doing and taking part of that and bringing it along with you. And that, that would be my advice. Um, and I think that, that'll definitely what, be what continues to push you. And the earlier you practice teaching people, teaching is actually a skill set, and it's very tough. It's really, really hard. When you become a sous chef, some people don't know what to do. They don't know how to get across to people. Very short, you know, tempered, and, you know, it's, it's a crazy learning curve having that skill to, to teach people and to mentor people properly. So the earlier you start um, practicing that, the better. So... There's never, it's never too early to, to practice teaching someone how to do something. I was gonna say too, um, for me, like, I feel like it also makes you better at your own job because it's easy to get comfortable and complacent, like doing your own thing and you get comfortable doing it and then when you have to say it out loud and teach someone else, like I've gotten tongue-tied trying to teach someone that I could do, you know, basically with my eyes closed and like, I feel like it just makes you better at what you do as well. There are two nuggets in there I just wanted to quickly call out. One is this notion of, I don't know if there's a name for it, but there ought to be, like the anti-mentor. Like I think seeing things you 
don't want to emulate is just as important as seeing things you do. It doesn't even have to be like someone's a jerk. It could just be like they're a little disorganized and how that kind of, you know, ripples down to everybody else and kind of affects everything, right? Including morale and productivity and all of that. Oh, did I lose my train of thought on the other one? It was something you were just saying. Oh, teaching. But you compared coaching and, and uh, you know, baseball and all of that before. Um, our mutual friend, Tim Hollingsworth, who's a chef in LA, he has OTM restaurant, taught me this several years ago. People don't learn the same, right? So I think uh, a really good teacher, like a really good coach, will kind of adjust how they teach to the person they're teaching. And I, I think that's something really important to be kind of aware of and alive to because some people are really good at following verbal instructions. Some people need something demoed for them. Some people need it in like really minute detail uh, verbally versus some people that might make them a little anxious, you know, because they're worried they're going to forget like one little micro step that they probably won't, right? And I think knowing that people may need you to adjust your approach to them, not because they're stubborn, just because it's how they're wired, I think can be really important. Let's go back to the back. How does your how does what you do as a did as a cook differ from what you do as a chef? For me, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing I did as a cook that I do as a chef, but I'm also like present in my kitchen. Every day we're open, some days we're not open. I just don't have a very large staff. So, yeah, I'm looking at you, Aaron. But also, I, it's what I love to do. I love to bake. So, like this morning, I opened the bakery just like I would if I was somebody's employee. So, for me, it hasn't changed at all, except for I do more paperwork now. Yeah, I, I guess the actual tasks, they change. But the way that you tackle them, it does not. Um, I still write a prep list in the morning. I write things that I need to get done. I, instead of writing my prep list sometimes though, it's checking my calendar or putting things in my calendar, emptying my inbox, making sure I respond to people. But all, you know, I could, I could make a really good case that to, to get an MBA or to, you know, get your PhD and be ready for any industry, you could spend a year in, in a restaurant working in a kitchen or working in the front of house or doing everything and it would be better training than some colleges give you because you learn life skills uh, through working a station every day. You know, if you look at your station as a mini restaurant and you run your station that you are responsible for as a mini restaurant, that's your training to one day run a big restaurant, a real restaurant. And when you run a real restaurant, instead of being responsible for your dishes, you're responsible for human beings and their livelihoods. And you know, we, we have 200 employees over two restaurants. We're going to, you know, going to go to three and there's going to be 300 employees or somewhere around there. And we're responsible for 300 people's lives. And my job, it, it's just the stakes get higher, I guess. <laughs> it's scary, you know, and you can't mess up. Just just like you guys can't overcook a piece of meat. I, I can't forget to make sure payroll goes rent. through. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or pay the rent or do any of those things. It's just, it builds all upon each other. Every station, Garmage, running a Garmage station is just like running a meat station. It's just like running a, being a sous chef and running a section of the kitchen is like being a chef and running the kitchen is like being a chef and running a restaurant, you know, it all builds. I want to take the questions that were still here, but I'm going to say, let's maybe have one person answer each of the next ones and keep it on the shorter side, just because we're getting a little long. Yeah. You, you had to ask this right after I said we're going to have short answers. <laughs> Here, I can, um, I can sum it no, up no, no. real so, quickly. Hold, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. The question was, what's the most important thing you think you need to know when you get to opening a restaurant? This is a generalization, but it's one thing I didn't realize, but it leads to all the rest. The paper that comes in the printer is not enough to last forever. It doesn't even last a day. Succinct. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Is there any or oh, I love that. Any phrases or advice? Yeah, this is the use the force Luke question. Are there any questions or advice that you kind of hear in your head all the time? Yeah. Monsieur Marshall told me that in pastry, we work with our hands and our head. Not, it's not just your hands. You're not just cooking and doing this. You got to use this too. Last question. Melody. 
Okay, so uh, question is, kitchens, uh, you know, servers are usually the conduit from a kitchen to the guest. Um, what was a time that you remember where you were able to kind of have the satisfaction or a real special moment of seeing a reaction uh, to something you cooked or to, to one of your dishes? I'll just say this one. It was when Douglas Keene, my mentor for a long time, you know, who I who sent me to New York and one day I, you know, became the chef at the restaurant and having the opportunity to cook for him and him coming back and being, you know, almost like we were both so emotional with that and him being showing all that emotion towards me as how proud he was that, that you know, that I put all that together to come that far. That was uh, an extremely powerful moment. And I've gotten to experience that when I've, you know, recently have gotten to go back into people's kitchens that I had mentored and pushed on to the next level and had that same experience. It's like, to me, I, I now know what he felt and that that experience there is, is the most rewarding. Watching, watching cooks grow is, is the most rewarding thing you can possibly do as a chef. Uh, so that's it. Thank you, everybody. Please give another round of applause to the Jareds, to Rebecca, to Chef Aaron, to the whole team here. And thanks again to Sam Pellegrino for hosting us all. Thank you. And that is our show for today. My thanks again to Aaron Bludorn, Rebecca Masson, Jared Zifchak, and Jared Adams for joining us. And again, my great thanks to Sam Pellegrino for all of their support, really, but especially for presenting this series. Also, a reminder to please, please, please check out my book, The Dish. If you like this show, I promise you will like the book. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask you to do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast for the show and my personal handle where you can follow my writing, dining, and general life adventures is Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D. Andrew, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.